Sin brings real consequences. It brings guilt and shame. It's not something we can cover over or hide. So what do we do? How do we pay the price? We don't. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Phil, we're at the start of the series we began last week, first addressing the question why we need to be saved. Today, we'll look at what we need to be saved from. Yes, we will, Mark, and this is something we need to understand right at the start if we're going to understand what it means to be saved by God's grace. You know, last week we saw clearly that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and today we're going to look a little more specifically at the consequences of our sin. And all along here we're answering the question, what am I saved from? If we're talking about salvation, we need to know what we're being saved from. Why do you think so many people think the message of salvation through Jesus Christ is not for them? Well, it's true. There are a lot of people who really aren't interested in the message of salvation in Christ. And I think that at the root of that attitude is the fact that people don't really understand themselves to be sinners. You have to understand what the problem is in order to appreciate and value the solution. I think of a man who recently came into church and he knew that he was addicted to various sins, but he didn't know why. And I think that's somebody who really is on his way, perhaps, to becoming a Christian, because once you understand that you've got a problem, then you can appreciate the solution that God has provided specifically through Christ's saving work on the cross. Thank you, Phil. And we'll see that today as we look at Genesis 3. Let's turn there now and listen to God's Word for us today. In our last study, we learned that the reason we need to be saved is because we are sinners. From the moment Adam and Eve first tasted the forbidden fruit, we have sought to secure our own glory rather than to serve God for His glory. Human beings are not basically good. We are essentially sinful, and therefore, if we are to be saved at all, we must be saved from sin. We're beginning a series of sermons on the message of salvation, which is God's answer to the sinfulness of our sin. And in a way, it, it is sin that helps to make sense of our salvation by showing what kind of salvation we need. The great Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle once wrote, The plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. Without a right knowledge of sin, such doctrines as justification and conversion and sanctification convey no meaning to the mind. The first thing, therefore, that God does when he makes anyone a new creature in Christ is to send light into his heart and show him that he is a guilty sinner. Well, even before they had a chance to wipe the juice from their chins. Adam and Eve knew that they were guilty sinners. We find this in Genesis chapter 3. I invite you to turn there. It will be useful to have it open. As soon as they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the eyes of both of them were opened, Genesis 3, verse 7. And they realized they were naked. It may have been the most anticlimactic moment in human history. Satan had promised Eve that she would be like God, knowing good and evil. So what did she know? 
Well, she knew she didn't have any clothes on. She knew that. It was hardly the intellectual achievement that she had been promised, that she was hoping for. Now, Adam and Eve had always been naked, of course, but before this they had never felt any shame. They were shameless in the best sense of the word. They were unembarrassed by either their bodies or their souls. They had nothing to hide either from one another or from God. Their consciences were clear. But you see, sin changed all of that. As soon as our first parents sinned, they felt ashamed. They were ashamed of their physical appearance, uncomfortable with their nakedness. They were ashamed of what they had done, embarrassed by their defiant act of rebellion. And they were ashamed of their very selves, unwilling to be known for who they were. And their shame provides a clue to the first consequence of sin. I want to mention this morning five consequences of sin to explain what we need to be saved from. And you see, sin, first of all, has this psychological effect of wounding the conscience, but the way it makes a person feel reveals an even deeper problem, and thus the first result of sin is that it makes human beings guilty in the sight of God. Sin leads to guilt. It places us under real divine condemnation. And our subjective feeling of shame is produced by a real objective condition of moral guilt. I suppose that deep down, we sinners are always ashamed of our sins, for shame is burned so deeply into the human conscience. Later, God asked Adam, this is verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? The answer, of course, was that no one told him he was naked. No one needed to. Adam could see that he was naked because his conscience accused him of being a guilty sinner. And our own consciences, if we will listen to them, accuse us of the same thing, for we are just as guilty as Adam. We're guilty in a way because we were implicated in his sin. So we saw in our last study, Adam was our representative in the covenant so that when he sinned, we sinned. God imputed Adam's sin to us. He reckoned Adam's sin to be our sin, calling it to our account. But more than this, we have inherited from Adam a sinful nature which leads us to commit so many actual sins of our own. And thus, whatever guilt we inherit from Adam, we have compounded by our own sin. We're guilty both for Adam's sin and for our own sin. And if we're to be saved, you see, something has to be done about all of our guilty shame. Adam and Eve sensed this immediately. As soon as they realized they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It was the world's first cover-up. It was the world's first attempt at salvation by works. And like all cover-ups and like all attempts to achieve salvation by human effort, it was doomed to fail. Summer foliage is hardly suitable to cover our bodies, let alone the sin of our souls. And yet although we cannot dress up for God, spiritually speaking, God does have a plan for removing our guilt. 
There's a hint of it already here in Genesis 3. It's in verse 21 after God finished pronouncing the curses, which we'll get to in a few moments. He made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Clothing our first parents was a way of showing that things could never be the same, that fallen human beings cannot go back to naked innocence. You see, the clothes were also a sign of God's grace. I showed that God can do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves, and that is to cover up all of our guilt and shame. And it's not insignificant that covering our shame required a blood sacrifice. This is part of the message of salvation. Sin brings guilt, and the guilt must be paid for through a sacrifice of atonement. Only then can we stand righteous in the sight of God. That is to say, only then can we be justified. And thus, the message of salvation must be a message about atonement, a message of justification. So the first consequence of sin is guilt, not only that subjective feeling of shame, but also the objective condition of real moral blameworthiness in the sight of God. And this brings us to a second consequence, and that is alienation from God. Then the man and his wife, this is verse 8, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. These verses hint at the wonderful intimacy Adam and Eve enjoyed with God before they sinned. Apparently, it was God's usual custom to walk through the garden in the cool of the day. Since God was their close friend, Adam and Eve undoubtedly ran to meet him, eager to converse about the events of the day. Imagine what it must have been like to walk and talk with God, to enjoy uninhibited communion with the God who made all things out of nothing. But it was so different once they had sinned, for sin demands separation from God. It brings alienation. Sinners know instinctively that God is too holy to look on their sin. So our first parents waited miserably for God's approach, dreading his footfall in Eden. And When they heard him coming, they ran into the woods to hide. Literally, they hid from his face. Of course, although they could run, they could not hide. No one can hide from God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipresent, so he is in all places. Therefore, when God asked the man where he was, It was not for his own information. He knew exactly where Adam and Eve were, and he knew exactly why they were there. Now, his question was designed, rather, to reveal this unhappy consequence of sin. It forced Adam to admit his alienation. I heard you, and I was afraid, so I hid. We see here another new emotion. Sin had already produced shame, the shame that comes from guilt. Now it produced fear, the fear that comes from being alienated from God. 
That fear was the proof of Adam's sin. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? Only one thing could account for Adam's fear and shame, you see, and that was his disobedience. Adam was ashamed and afraid because he had eaten from the unlawful tree. His fear and shame were symptoms of the disease of guilty sin. Now, as you perhaps know, Adam's first instinct was to blame God for all his troubles. You see, this too was another sign of his alienation. Did Adam eat the forbidden fruit? Well, yes, but it was really God's fault. The woman you put here with me, verse 12. Thus the man excused himself and accused God for the existence of his own evil, as human beings have tried to do ever since. You see, sin means alienation from God. And we're sensible of this. Every time we actually sin, we keep our distance. Our fellowship with God is hindered. We are afraid to meet him face to face. And since we are sinners by nature, this is our natural condition. It's our condition before we come to Christ. Our transgression brings us under divine condemnation. As the Bible says elsewhere, you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And you see, therefore, that if we are to be saved, that our communion with God must be restored, the breach in our friendship has to be Repaired, and therefore the message of salvation must be a message of reconciliation. Now, sin brings alienation not only from God, but also from one another. Having rebelled against God, we now find ourselves estranged from one another, which is a third consequence of our sin guilt, alienation, and now estrangement. The breach between Adam and Eve became apparent the moment they sinned. They felt the need to protect themselves, not only from the gaze of God, but also from that unbearable scrutiny of another human being. Not long afterwards, Adam made his first assault on his estranged wife. God asked if he had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. We see how quickly Adam mastered the art of self-defense. His confession, and I ate it, comes as an afterthought. His real concern is to shift the blame to Eve. And this is the way of fallen human beings. We excuse our own sins by saying it is always someone else's fault. And then, in a way, even worse, we seek to dominate one another. This is the meaning of God's curse against Eve, as we find it in verse 16. At the end, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This verse does not mean that the man's spiritual authority in the home and in the church is a result of the fall. Nor does it have anything to do, as some have thought, with sex, at least directly. It's more a prophecy about the struggle for power in human relationships. This Hebrew word for desire next appears in chapter 4, verse 7, where it describes sin's desire to gain mastery over Cain. 
You see, in much the same way, the woman desires mastery over the man and will manipulate him to get it. And of course, meanwhile, the man rules over the woman not as a servant leader, but as a harsh taskmaster. The Hebrew word for rule here is a word for military attack, even abuse. The man seeks to take control of the woman, and if he has to, he will use force to get it. You see, this is what it means for us to be estranged from one another, not simply that we are isolated, but that we seek to dominate one another emotionally, spiritually, and even physically. One can only imagine the bitter arguments Adam and Eve must have had during their long, sad years after Eden. If only you had never eaten that forbidden fruit, Eve would say. Well, you ate it first, Adam would retort. In Paradise Lost, the epic poem based on humanity's fall into sin, John Milton describes their endless recriminations. He puts it like this, Thus they in mutual accusation spent their fruitless hours, but neither self-condemning, and of their vain contest appeared no end. Milton was right. There is no end to human conflict. Everyone wants to be the victim, never the villain. Thus there is discord and disharmony. At every level of human relationship, there's estrangement in the home, where wives criticize their husbands and husbands respond in anger, where children disobey their parents and parents, in turn, exasperate their children. In the home, as we see in our society, where the elderly are killed off in the name of mercy, while the unborn never see the light of day. There's estrangement in human society. Men and women wage an endless battle of the sexes. Oppression is so woven into the fabric of our economy that the poor are bound by the cords of injustice. There's estrangement in the workplace where bosses abuse their authority and workers rise up in rebellion. Estrangement in the church, where each separate group claims that God is on its side. There is estrangement around the globe, often in the form of armed conflict, nation rising against nation, dictators oppressing their own people, terrorists committing random acts of violence. Little wonder that man himself should be called by one scholar as man's most intractable problem. If we are to be saved, we must be saved from ourselves, from all of the unspeakable things that we do to one another. Thus, you see, the message of salvation must tell us something more than how to get rid of our guilt, how to be reconciled to God. It must also show us how to love one another, how to live together in harmony and community, not as strangers, but as brothers and sisters. You see, we're beginning to find the many miserable consequences of sin, that sin brings shame and guilt and alienation and estrangement, all this. And yet we still have yet to really explore the actual penalties for sin. It's pronounced in God's curse in verses 16 through 19. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. And to the man, he said, cursed is the ground because of you. You may remember that God had commanded the man and the woman to be fruitful, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. 
That creation mandate, as it is sometimes called, was to remain in force. Eve would still give birth. Indeed, in the very next verse, verse 20, we read that she would become the mother of all the living. At the same time, Adam would continue to work the ground and to take care of it. Those callings have never been reversed, but they have been cursed. And so although what was a blessing remains a blessing, it has also become a burden. A woman is cursed in her roles as wife and mother. In part, her curse refers to the physical pains of childbirth, concerning which the Bible means exactly what it says. But the curse refers to much more besides. It refers to childbearing in general and thus to all the frustrations of womanhood, including not getting married, not having children, and all the heartaches that come with motherhood. And like the woman, the man is cursed in his calling. He still has to subdue the earth, but now his work is toilsome. The ground will only yield its fruit at the cost of sweaty labor. The creation itself is frustrated by sin. So instead of tending the garden, the man has to go out into the wilderness full of thorns and thistles and turn it into a garden. This curse is not just... For farmers, obviously, it's for everyone who experiences the drudgery and stress that come from working on the job. What does a man get? We read in Ecclesiastes, for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors. You see, for the man and the woman, both at home and at work, sin leads to suffering. And this is the fourth consequence of sin. The curse against the man and the woman encompasses all of the frustrations of life. It explains the misery and the meaninglessness of our existence. But there is more. There is also mortality. For the wages of sin is death. And this death is the fifth result of sin. It was the penalty God had threatened from the beginning. When you eat of it, that is the tree... This is chapter 2, verse 17. When you eat of it, you will surely die. After Adam sinned, God pronounced against him the curse of the covenant, as we see it in verse 19. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The ultimate result of our disobedience is death. That is God's punishment for the sin of the first man. And spiritually speaking, Adam was a dead man the moment that he ate the forbidden fruit. There was no spiritual life left in him. And Adam also began to die physically when he ate from the tree. He became a mortal man with a body subject to death and decay. And thus we too are mortals. Having sinned in Adam, we also die in Adam. We're dead spiritually, dead in our trespasses and sins. And one day soon we will die physically. Death is the absolute proof that we are sinners who seek our own ungodly glory. And the futility of our condition is that we will end up right back where we started. Rather than subduing the earth, we will be subdued by it. For dust we are, and to dust we will return. 
And then there's another kind of death as well, what the Bible calls the second death, or sometimes simply hell. Understand that God's wrath against sin is absolute. He is utterly opposed to sin and resolutely determined to punish it. Our sins deserve the wrath and curse of God, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. And those who die in their sins, as Jesus once put it, must suffer the torment of eternal separation from God. You know, these days people are much more likely to believe in heaven than in hell. But to deny the reality of hell is to deny the truth and the justice of God. It's also to misunderstand the message of salvation. For if we are to be saved at all, we must be saved from sin's final fatal consequence, the second death. Well, even this brief survey of Genesis 3 is surely enough to confirm that sin is the greatest of all evils. It's the greatest evil because all other evils come from it. Guilt and alienation, estrangement, suffering and death. Many great minds have wondered what is wrong with humanity. I think, for example, of the psychologist Eric Fromm wrestling with his sense of futility over the human condition and writing this, while we have created wonderful things, we have failed to make ourselves beings for whom this tremendous effort would seem worthwhile. Ours is a life not of brotherliness, happiness, and contentment, but of spiritual chaos and bewilderment close to a state of madness. And you see, the insanity of humanity is the inevitable result of sin with all of its consequences. The problem with man, said Philip Edgecombe Hughes, is that there is conflict and disintegration at the very core of his being. He has robbed himself of harmony with his creator, harmony within himself, and harmony with his fellow human beings. This is the source and explanation of all that is wrong with man and the world he inhabits. It is the sickness unto death from which man in his fallenness inescapably suffers. You see, the best explanation for the tragic condition of our sickness unto death is the biblical doctrine of sin. The world is the way that it is, and we are the way that we are because of our sin. And the sinfulness of sin shows that salvation is no small matter. Though it takes a great salvation to solve all the problems that sin has brought into the world. It takes a sin that atones for guilt, justifying sinners in the sight of God. It takes a salvation that restores our friendship with God, replacing alienation with reconciliation. It takes a salvation that makes us brothers and sisters instead of strangers and gives us life after death. And if that is what salvation requires, I wonder if I can interest you in Jesus. Oh yes, I wonder if I can interest you in Jesus. You know, it is an amazing thing how little interest there is in the biblical message of salvation in Christ. Jesus is generally considered nice enough in his own way, but essentially irrelevant to the problems of the postmodern world. Most secular people admire Jesus as a good teacher, 
Muslims call him a prophet. Mormons consider him a son of God. Hindus even recognize his divinity after a fashion. What all these opinions about Jesus share in common is an unwillingness to give him the credit he really deserves. And sadly, so many people think that Jesus offers a salvation that no one really needs, least of all themselves. And if the message of salvation in Jesus is considered irrelevant, it must be because people don't really understand the problem that he came to solve. I think of a correspondent who once asked the English writer and apologist Dorothy Sayers to answer two great questions about human existence. Why does everything we do go wrong? And what is the meaning of all this suffering? When Sayers wrote back to her friend, she was able to answer the two questions in only three words. The Christian answer to the first question, why does everything we do go wrong, is sin. And the answer to the second question, what is the meaning of all this suffering, is Christ crucified. The reason everything we do go wrong is because we're sinners, and the meaning of all our suffering and the only hope we have for salvation is that Christ died on the cross for our sins. The Bible teaches that Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him. As we have it in the King James Version, Jesus is able to save them to the uttermost. It's a way of saying that Jesus is capable of doing everything necessary for our salvation. This is the message of salvation. It's all about Jesus, about the way that he died on the cross to save us and thus took upon himself our guilt and our shame, reconciling us to God, delivering us from death. Jesus was crucified to do everything it takes to save us. And therefore, in Christ, we find the perfect solution to the problem of our sin with all of its consequences. If you come next Sunday night, you will also see that in Christ, we find the only solution to the problem of our sin with all of its consequences. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would show us the sinfulness of our sin, that we would understand our own personal guilt, that we would see all of the sin and suffering in the world for what it is. And we pray that you would give us this sense of the sinfulness of sin so that we might see the the joy and the greatness of salvation in Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. You're listening to Every Last Word with Bible teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible featuring Donald Barnhouse. 
For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.